Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansero, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. There is already an enormous amount of concern and worry about the effect of the pandemic on cancer screenings. For instance, a recent report from the American Association of Cancer Research found an 87% drop in breast cancer screening, an 84% decline in cervical cancer screening, and an 80% reduction in colon cancer screening. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we discuss how healthcare inequities will make this problem worse. Our guest is Dr. Monica Sony, Associate Chief Medical Officer at New Century Health. Dr. Sony, who previously was the Director of Specialty Care for the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, the nation's second largest municipal health system, delves into how racial disparities in healthcare and social determinants of health hinder preventing cancer in the first place. And she also provides some reaction to President Joe Biden's cancer moonshot announcement. Welcome to Managed Carecast, Dr. Sony. Thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be with you. Can you just start off by telling me a little bit about your background? Yes, I would be glad to. So I am a practicing internist. I have trained and practiced primarily in public systems and the safety net and uh, am now an associate chief medical officer at New Century Health. But really thinking about how do we drive quality and value for patients that have oncologic diagnoses and cardiovascular diagnoses. And can you just describe a little bit about what New Century Health does? Um, It manages specialty care under capitated arrangements. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the company's been around for um, 20 years. We celebrated our anniversary just this year. And we do have some full risk capitated arrangements in both oncology and cardiology, um, as well as non-risk-based arrangements. But the really backbone of our business is just what I mentioned, making sure that patients that have these diagnoses get high quality, cost-effective care, and really just trying to keep up with the ever-changing evidence in this space supporting providers and practitioners and payers, make sure that patients live longer and live better. It's become evident at this point that the pandemic has had some pretty awful effects when it comes to screening for cancer. What are your concerns about how the pandemic has made healthcare equity worse for vulnerable populations when it comes to screening and treating cancer? Yeah, this is one of my sort of passion topics right now. Every day that goes by that we are not catching up with screening is a day lost that we can't make up for. So at the very peak of the pandemic, there was a study that Epic put out there that showed that uh, cancer screenings dropped by 90%. And the most recent update of those numbers showed that we were pretty much back to baseline, but importantly, we had not rebounded. So if you think about it, right, we started to accumulate this backlog of patients who would not get their mammograms, didn't get their pap smears, the colorectal cancer screening, and now we're sort of just treading water. We're not actually doing weekend screenings or um, after-hours screenings that maintain social distancing. So if you just follow the math, we're not going to catch up with it. And the impact of that 
uh, it's sort of going to compound over the years. So let's say you aren't getting screening done. We also know that there is social distancing, reduced capacity still, especially in impacted areas around biopsies. So you're not getting the diagnostic test, even if you got the screening done. Let's keep moving forward. We know that there's reduced um, elective surgery capacity and that our operating rooms are still impacted. Okay, so then you're not getting actually the curative surgery that you might need as well, and on and on and on. So it's not just about the screenings, it's really on that downstream uh, kind of domino impact of it as well. And, and where are we going to see this kind of amplified in the communities of color that have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19? Because those are the health systems that have been most impacted during the surges, all of them in the ongoing surge, which we're finally coming out of. And those are the health systems that have not been able to actually do um, increased screening, increased biopsies, you know, more operating room time because they're still struggling with the surge. So it's just really, to me, this is an extremely worrisome situation. I, I'm appreciative of what was written into Biden's moonshot about trying to support systems that have been impacted and expand screening. But again, it's not just screening, it's all of the downstream impact too. Since you mentioned the cancer moonshot, let me jump right there. So knowing what we know about the expected impact of the pandemic on cancer that's coming, can you tell me more about what you appreciate about it and where it could go further? Absolutely. You know, I'm excited that this is getting some airtime again, uh, sort of rebranded 2.0. I think having a renewed focus on reducing cancer mortality by 50% absolutely is something we can all get behind. There's a lot of focus in Moonshot, however, on sort of new innovation, thinking about targeted therapy, um, a little bit less focus, to be honest, on the, the foundations and basics. We, it does call out that the, the NCI is going to focus on thinking about how to expand screening. Um, but when you really focus on how do you decrease mortality by 50% from cancer, you actually need to go even further upstream than just screening. So, you know, why is it that certain communities have higher rates of breast cancer or higher rates of colorectal cancer. It's not just because lack of access to screening, although absolutely that is a factor. It's thinking about, you know, our communities in a food desert. Uh, there, do we have more obesity? Is there environmental pollutants? And all of that work is really missing from Moonshot um, that prevent, you know, preventive public health lens to figuring out how to reduce mortality. I had a feeling you were going to go to prevention because I think that it, you know so much of that is is often missed for everyone. Last year, I saw one medical commentator on Twitter say, "Let's stop using, for instance, social determinants of health, and let's start calling it what it is, which is poverty." And and many people now might say racism. So, how can these issues be addressed, and who's best to tackle them? Yes, I, I definitely agree with the, the comments. I, I do think that you have to throw in uh, the impact of race and racism and discrimination. It's not just poverty, right? Like that's, that's actually quite clear. So I think, first of all, we just have to be willing to talk about it, right? When you talk about cancer, do we all accept the fact that we have created segregated communities that have poor access to green space, poor access to healthy foods, um, and that that is something that has happened over time and through the history of America. So first of all, like let's we have to accept the fact base before we can even start to solve for it. And then we actually have to change how we fund. So right now, so much of our um, spend is in the treatment phase. 
And so a lot of what you see, you know, really in Moonshot is focused on traditional healthcare delivery mechanisms, actually administering the mammogram, uh, making sure that new therapies hit different populations, clinical trials, I get it, but the dollars then are not being actually diverted to what we just talked about. Thinking about how do you mitigate these risks from the beginning is really to me a public health lens, which is we know is just an underfunded. I think COVID-19 also really you know, elucidated that, right? The, the money is not distributed in the ways that we sometimes need it to be distributed. So I think at all levels that needs to be addressed, but certainly at a governmental level. There was also a statement in the president's announcement that read, we will improve the experience of people and their families living with and surviving cancer. What does that mean to you and for the patients and families that you see? Yeah, this is a incredibly interesting and complicated one. So we, uh, one of our data scientists at New Century Health took a cohort of Medicaid patients and tracked from a screening to diagnosis to actually their first receipt of chemotherapy or treatment, how many touch points they actually had. And it looked crazy. The diagram was squiggled all over the place, circles, you know, a cyclone of, of sort of patient journey mapping. And that is what actually patients and family members and their loved ones deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Our system is fractured, it is siloed, we don't communicate well, and we certainly do not put the patient at the middle of that experience. Um, I even think when we talk about, for example, the adoption of telehealth, we sometimes assume that that made the experience better for patients uniformly. It didn't necessarily, right? Like there's a digital divide as well and, and there's a disparate receipt of things like video versus phone even in that space. So I guess I would say first we have to start by taking a step back, making sure that patients and their loved ones and families and caregivers actually are at the center of that design and that it's a co-design and it's co-creation and that we're willing to let the, that, that voice be heard. And I deeply respect organizations like PCORI because we actually do start to hear about what are the patient reported outcomes that people actually care about? What are the metrics that we should be measuring that actually are, we're hearing straight from the consumer in this sort of circumstance? Um, I love the idea, you know, you know, nothing designed for us without us really being there. So I guess I would say that first, I don't want to assume that I know best because I, you know, thankfully I'm not someone that's, that's struggling with an oncologic diagnosis. I want to hear what those folks want our system to, to do and how our system should revolve around them. Another question just popped into my head that I originally wasn't planning to ask, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask it. The oncology care model is going away with nothing to replace it. What are your thoughts on that? And, and what are, uh, your physician saying? Yeah, we were, um, we partnered with some specific practices to try to support um, OCM. And some folks did reasonably well, and a lot of folks didn't, which is why it's going away. I didn't have the impact, the financial impact that folks really expected it to have. And I guess I would say um, it's disappointing that it's going away. Um, I guess I would rather hear that there's going to be a replacement that looks end to end in improving what we just talked about, that the patient experience, not just curbing costs. Um, we do know that there is a ton of expense in the treatment phase or and primarily right pharmaceuticals, right? Oncology pharmaceuticals drive a huge percentage of the cost. But the other part of it is the spend towards the end of life. You know, there's a chunk of cancers, probably about 50% that are not curative. 
and we are treating folks really aggressively, sometimes with medically non-beneficial, dare I say, even futile regimens, and not focusing on early receipt of palliative care, advanced care planning, making sure that we're doing goal concordant delivery of care, um, and when appropriate, you know, having folks uh, have the support of hospice. And so I, I just think we need to re-envision, right? How do we actually, from start to finish, align those things, and how do we then fund it in a more comprehensive way? You mentioned cost a few minutes ago, and we know that uh, if advanced cancers are going to be appearing in, in your offices uh, over the next few years, they're more expensive, more difficult to treat. And you've written about the financial toxicity of certain oral cancer drugs. And part of that is based on insurance design or how the therapies uh, are paid for, administered. So I guess my question is, how can patients who are under such enormous stress understand this and understand it not only from a therapeutic perspective of knowing what options are being presented to them while also wrapping their head around these financial implications? Yes, I hate that we have a healthcare system where that decisional burden falls upon a patient and their caregivers. I really believe the onus has to be on us as healthcare providers. There's a bit of this perception that to practice pure medicine, you have to be sort of agnostic to cost or like, you know, blind to cost, which is irresponsible. I just, that's not the way we should be practicing medicine. We as practitioners have to think about cost effectiveness and we have to be able to have conversations with patients. We can't make a treatment plan and then let someone figure it out once they get to the pharmacy um, or their bills come in, in the mail. That's not how we should be practicing medicine. So, you know, there are tools that have been in place around shared decision-making. They rarely focus on cost, but I guess I would say I would love to think about that as being another piece of information that we share with patients up front. And especially, as, I think, at the core of that is do you have a trusting relationship between the, the physician or practitioner and the patient? Is that actually a space where patient and their family could say, how much is this going to cost me? And that the physician on the other side has an appropriate response to it and can answer that question. So there's a lot of work to be done here. I think the, the physicians and practitioners are ill-equipped um, and also like to put on blinders in this space. I think, unfortunately, we haven't empowered patients to be able to say to their doctor, how much is this going to cost me? And is there an alternative and have the response that, that they need to make decisions in an informed consent way? And then, I mean, the of course, the like uh, elephant in the room is like, why do we have this affordability issue, right? Like, why is this happening between the, the practitioners and the patients? We, we really need to think about some of the other pieces, some of the accelerated approvals that have come out and then had to be withdrawn. Uh, there was a great study that just came out that looked at how much, how many Medicare dollars were spent on therapies that ultimately got withdrawn, their indications or their approvals got withdrawn. That is only waste right? Waste for the patient, didn't benefit the patient, and just cost money to the system. So, you know, I, I think also that work needs to happen in parallel. I think some of my coworkers covered that study that you just talked about. So that's another issue that is definitely on everyone's minds, I think. Is there anything else I forgot to ask or that you want to add? Uh, maybe the only other thing is We've spent some time, I think, touching on these upstream factors that impact both cancer uh, prevalence and the kind of, kind of cancer treatment. And 
when I think about social determinants of health, the way I often think about it is it impacts all of us, right? It's not just certain communities that have, are impacted by social determinants of health. This is really something that, you know, you and I, um, the environment that we are in, the food we have access to, our educational system, all of that impacts our health outcomes, our wellness, our well-being. And so I think we want equity for, for everybody, right? There aren't just a couple groups that are suffering from uh, the social determinants of health. We all have social determinants of health and we want those social determinants to be positive versus negative for some groups. And so, again, I think that's just an important thing for folks to think about. It's not, uh, it's a goal we should all be striving towards. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And um, I really appreciate the work that you and all of your colleagues are doing in this area. Thank you so much for having me. It's really my pleasure. For all of us at AJMC, thanks for listening. To learn more about these issues, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.